Please open in your Bibles to the book of First Peter as we continue our slow but steady march through. As you're turning to chapter 2, taste. Have you ever stopped to consider just how important and amazing your sense of taste is? We have to eat in order to live, but why did God give us the ability to taste our food? Think about how mundane and boring eating would be if you didn't taste any of your food. It's a remarkable thing that God gave us taste so that we could actually enjoy a whole new spectrum of pleasure. His creation is that much more amazing because he created flavors that we can experience. Now, of course, there are practical reasons for taste, but just think about the aesthetics of it for a moment. He made our brains so that we would delight in good flavors. Sweet, bitter, salty, savory, sour. These are amazing sensations, things that make food taste very good. And furthermore, we all have different tastes, and each one of our taste buds, they, they change over time. So flavor is a whole spectrum of pleasure and enjoyment that God has blessed us with. But as amazing as the world of taste is, Food can only please you so much. God has given us something far better than food to chew and digest. He has given us his grace in the word of God. There's that familiar verse, man lives not on bread alone, but on every word of God. So in a way, savoring food can be used almost like a tutor to help you learn to meditate and explore the far richer truths of the Lord. So because we've experienced grace, we must hold fast to the truth. With that introduction, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, again, we pray that you would work this word in our hearts, that we would understand what it means uh, to taste and see that the Lord is good, and that we would be able to ask ourselves that very question that Peter proposes, even as we work through this text. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look at two points this morning. And the first is that because we've experienced grace, we must cut off relational sin. So the text for this morning begins with, so. What Peter is about to say is dependent upon what he has already said. Verses 1 through 3 will build upon the teaching from the end of chapter 1. Now, he could be summing up everything going all the way back to verse 13. And in some sense, that's what he's doing. But I think what we looked at last week, specifically chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, is the more precise reference for what we're building on here. That's the passage we looked at last week, and really the same topic, the same themes are continued now in these three verses. The focus of the end of chapter 1 was the command to love one another earnestly. Peter commanded us to have a sincere brotherly love for one another. That love was the result of purifying ourselves through believing the gospel. And verse 23 explained that we have been reborn with the imperishable seed of the word of God. 
Since the word of God is pure and abiding, our love for one another must be pure and eternally abiding. Our love between the brothers and sisters in Christ is a love that will never go away and a love that will never cease. The love for the saints that we have for one another is one that will continue on into glory forever. But Peter was not finished with the implications of those truths. Now, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we see more directions for how it is we're supposed to love one another. So remember that Scripture is full of indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives are statements of fact. They're statements of reality, whereas imperatives are the commands of Scripture. So the commands of Scripture are always founded in the knowledge of who God is and who he has called you to be. So this passage is no different. We are mostly looking at the imperatives in this section, but they are based on the indicatives of who we are as purified and reborn saints. So remember that the basis for everything we're about to talk about is sourced in who we are as children of God. We have been purified through Christ. We have been called to a grand salvation. We are called to fellowship and brotherly love. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your soul, strength, heart, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The second is what Peter is mostly concerned with in these verses. He wants you to understand how it is that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter wants you to know how to take the vertical love for God and apply it horizontally for the other saints. We do not have to create that love for one another ourselves. By virtue of our salvation we receive, we are set at peace with other believers. Ephesians 4, verse 3, Paul tells us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. He doesn't tell you to create that unity. He tells you to maintain it. So since we are all regenerated and indwelt by the Spirit of God, we are brought into a perfect unity. Therefore, Peter doesn't need to tell us how to create that love ourselves, but rather how to protect the love that God has given us. And so Peter's main concern here is to teach us how to guard our brotherly love from things that can damage relationships. And in this fallen world, there are a litany of things that can damage our fellowship. Communion with other believers is ultimately in danger because of sin. That sin can attack our relationships from various levels. The world wants to oppress and prevent the church from fellowshipping. Think of nations like China and Canada limiting worship and arresting believers for preaching the truth. The culture hates Christianity and they will attack it on every point. So when Believers begin to divide over secondary issues in politics, things prominent in our culture. Formerly united believers are suddenly divided. But despite all those external threats, the most dangerous threat to communion, to the communion of the saints, is not an external one, but an internal one. The most difficult threat to face is our own imperfect hearts. James 4, 1 through 3 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Our own hearts and sins are the greatest threats to the church. 
That's why Peter doesn't tell us how to change the world. He doesn't tell us how to pacify the culture. He tells you how to address your own heart. He commands us here in the text to put away, to put away the sins that can damage and destroy our relationships with the other children of God. Verse 1 in the ESV says to put away. Some translations say rid yourselves. This is a command in the text. So those, those translations do a good job in giving that command force. But the Greek verb also has an ongoing element. And there are some other translations that show that dynamic well by translating it as putting or laying aside. I think both of those aspects are important for us to understand. Peter is commanding us to do something. But it's not a one-time action that is completed and then never addressed again. We can't put away the things Peter's about to list once and expect the job to be finished for good. These are things that we are commanded to be continually removing from our hearts. Sin likes to resurface. It likes to come back again. And so we have to be constantly vigilant and thorough in attacking these sins when we see them in our hearts. We can give them no mercy and we can give them no quarter or our relationships will suffer and be damaged. The same verb that we're talking about, this putting away, it was normally used for taking off old and worn out clothing. So you take off the old rags and you can put on the new after. And when we get to the second point in the sermon and in the text, we're going to see that there's something which we must then put on, something new. But these sins that we must put off are the negative contrasts or the foils to the good we will see in the next two verses. But before we get to that, we need to understand what it is we're about to take off and what it is we must remove. What are those old rags that just hold us back from a sincere brotherly love? What are the sins that can cause such damage between saints? Well, first, Peter says that we have to remove all malice from our hearts. And at its core, malice is a form of hatred. It is desiring harm or injury to others out of a wicked heart. The word can also be a more general term for evil or wickedness. So in a way, the rest of the sins that we're about to talk about all have their source in malice. So whether out of anger or jealousy or something else, malice wants to see others injured. Malice is the evil behind abuse. Serial killers are full of malice. Angry men looking for a fight are full of malice. But it doesn't have to be so flagrant and it doesn't have to be so apparent to be malice. Malice is present in the heart from a young age. If you've ever been around kids, you'll know they sometimes do things that shock you. They can sometimes be really mean. They can sometimes just randomly hit. Now, it may be a mild form compared to the other examples we mentioned, but it's still malice in the heart. We, as adult believers, are not immune to malice. The ways in which we show it are just different. We are smarter about how we show malice. Maybe we don't invite that one person to the party. He made me mad, so he doesn't get to come. You're talking with someone you are irritated with, so you make that one cutting remark that you know will sting. It can even be given in silence. Giving a cold shoulder, pretending not to notice someone, or, or glaring at them are all different forms of of malice. I think it's pretty self-explanatory how these behaviors and attitudes in the church can damage communion. So in the end, the easiest diagnostic for whether you are being malicious in your heart is to ask yourself a question. Am I seeking to build others up 
or am I seeking my own way? If you're looking out for number one and pushing for what you want, chances are you're being malicious in some way. We can't harbor evil towards anyone, especially not other believers. Be continually putting away malice. Second, Peter commands us to put away all deceit. Anything that is not sincere, honest, and truthful falls under the category of deceit. Now, telling lies is obviously a breach of this command. We need to be honest with one another and not mislead. So there is a general call for honesty here. The ninth commandment orders us not to bear false witness against our neighbors. Hiding any truth that hurts our neighbors is expressly forbidden. But there are also more subtle ways we can fall into traps and disobey this command. People pleasing is a form of deceit in which we're putting on some sort of false persona. Reasons for flattery are many. We may want something from someone, respect, power, or material things. We may just want attention or to be well thought of. But sometimes the reason is more sinister. Paul describes it this way in Romans 16, 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So some use deceit to mislead and draw people away from the truth. Satan himself is called the father of lies. So even small things can fall under this category. No, I'm fine. Nothing's wrong. I'm not mad at you. But all the while, something may be very wrong. You just aren't willing to say what it is and deal with it. Deceit is the way of Satan in the world, but it has no place in the church. All deceit is evil and serves only to damage the church. Therefore, you need to search your hearts and put away all deceit. Third, Peter commands us to put away hypocrisy. Now, Peter used this same word in the section we looked at last week. Go back and look at chapter 1, verse 22. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now, the word for sincere there is literally unhypocritical in the Greek. So the love we are to have for one another is to be unhypocritical. So it makes sense then that Peter would tell us to put off hypocrisy. If our behavior is insincere, then it is hypocritical. If we condemn or judge others for the same sins we commit, we're being hypocritical. If you see the sins of everyone around you and not your own, then you're also in danger here. If all you see is is the speck in your brother's eye, but not the log in your own, then you're a hypocrite. Superiority and pride in yourself are sure signs of this sin. Hypocrisy damages relationships within the church and it stunts the growth of the whole church. Nobody wants to go back to a church full of bitter, judgmental, quote-unquote, Christians. So we guard against hypocrisy by examining our hearts, putting sin to death, confessing our sins to one another, and recognizing that we are just as badly in need of grace as everyone else around us. So for the good of the church and your own soul, Peter says, put off, put away hypocrisy. And fourth, Peter commands us to put away envy. We love to compare and contrast things. When shopping for cars, clothes, houses, whatever else it may be, we love to compare. We compare prices, features, reliability. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But unfortunately, that's not all we compare. 
We are always comparing what we have with what others have. That guy's car is way nicer than mine. That house is a lot bigger than mine. I wish I had that car, house, computer, whatever it may be. But we even compare ourselves with others. Women want any hairstyle but their own. Men wish they were stronger, more athletic, more skilled. That couple's marriage seems perfect. Why can't my marriage be like that? How's that person so healthy and fit? I wish I didn't have all these health issues. But in the end, envy is wanting something you do not have. And that's exactly what the Tenth Commandment forbids when it commands you not to covet. One of the most difficult sins to deal with in the Christian life is wanting everything that God has not given us rather than being happy with the blessings and gifts that he has given us. Envy is really, in the end, being mad at God because there is something you want that you don't have, that he has not given to you. It's a form of discontentedness where you deserve more. So the key to putting off envy is to be thankful for what God has given you. Being content and thankful is the counter for envy. One commentator put it this way, If God were truly enough for us, we would not feel the need to have what others enjoy. God gives us all we need and blessings beside. So if we truly trust him, then we have to be thankful for our blessings. A church full of envious people will never be a close-knit community. If you envy someone, it's going to be difficult to be genuine and loving and caring around them. It's also really hard to love someone you envy because more often than not, envy is going to lead to hate. We hate others because they have what we want. Don't envy your brothers and sisters. God has gifted us all with different gifts and blessings. And more importantly, God knows what you need better than you do. He has given you what you need most. So learn to trust that he is for you and not against you. Know that his desire is to richly bless us now and into eternity. So put away envy. And then lastly, Peter commands us to put away all slander. Now, to slander someone is is to attack their name or their reputation with words. Now, normally slander is in the form of lies and exaggerations. When you are mean to someone's face, that's malice. When you are cruel behind their backs, that's slander. The word for slander can also mean evil speaking or backbiting. Slander is the verbal equivalent of malice. A heart full of anger and discontent will attack others through slander. Sometimes it's the result of anger or hatred towards another. Other times it's an attempt to make yourself look better by comparison. But Peter calls us to have a sincere brotherly love. And slander is the opposite of a sincere love. Slander can destroy people's reputation, business, and friendships. So if you convince others that someone is horrible or untrustworthy, those people are going to be hesitant to trust that person as well. I'm guessing you can see the problems that that can cause for fellowship. And I think the most common form of this sin in the church is gossip. Gossiping takes things that may or may not be true and spreads the word around. Other terms for the same thing are idle talk, spreading information, or I'm worried about their behavior. But no matter what label you put on it, if you're spreading lies about someone else, it will damage them and it will damage the church. And gossiping is a huge problem in the church, and it's one that must be watched out for and corrected. And of course, the general rule of thumb, if you can't say it to their face with a good conscience, you shouldn't say it at all. 
Another rule is that if you're not certain about something someone else is doing, don't talk about it. Because rumors are voracious animals. And really, here's the key. If we are concerned with building one another up with carefully chosen words, then we won't be slandering anybody. Paul explains it well in Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear it. If we care about the reputation of others and the truth, we won't slander. If the goal is to give grace to anyone who hears us speak, then we are obeying the command of Scripture. So for the health of the church, we must put away all slander. So those are all the negative commands of the text. A negative command is don't do this. Because of who we are as redeemed saints, we must put away all those sins. And we have to constantly be vigilant over our own hearts and over our minds and putting away those sins. Where there's malice or envy, we need to confess those sins and turn from them. We must always be putting the world out of our hearts and out of our minds. You were not born again to be by yourself. You were reborn into the communion of the saints. And that means that you need to put off every sin that might damage your relationships with other believers. Cultivate your relationships. Be quick to show grace to one another even beyond what you think others deserve. Because God has showed you a grace that you did not deserve. And therefore we must put away all these evil things. So the second point, looking at verses 2 through 3, is that because we've experienced grace, we must desire the word. So having completed the negative commands, Peter now turns to give us a positive command. We are commanded to put away evil things. Now in verse 2, we are commanded to put on something good. We are to long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, the actual command in that verse is the long word in the ESV. And other possible translations are to crave or to desire. And the idea with all of those terms is that there is a sincere yearning for something. Furthermore, it's an overwhelming sensation that affects multiple parts of our bodies. True longing affects both the body and the mind, and sometimes it can even affect the soul. So the more serious the object of our longing the more likely every part of our beings are involved. The desire for fellowship and friendship is something that is felt in the heart, mind, and body. And the idea here is the same. We have to eagerly desire this spiritual milk. The oddity with this verse is that we are commanded to long for something. Longing is not normally something we talk about as something that can be ordered. We don't. When a child won't eat their food, The parent's normal response is not to say, crave those chicken nuggets now. And yet in the text is clearly a forceful command which requires our obedience. Therefore, if we are to understand this passage at all, then we must understand what it means that we are commanded to long for spiritual milk. And so really we need to answer two questions. First, how do we rightly obey this command to long for spiritual milk? And then second, what is the spiritual milk? So first, we are to long for spiritual milk like newborn infants. Now, babies, especially newborns, love to cry. And when they cry, it's normally for one of two possible reasons. Either they're hungry or they need a diaper change. So babies have to eat milk, drink milk constantly in order to grow. 
If they're hungry, they're going to let you know by crying. And in that moment, there is nothing else that will calm or quiet the child except for milk. God has designed them to recognize their hunger and cry until the problem is fixed. He made infants that way because there's nothing more important to their health at that stage of development than being fed. And so when they feel hungry, they will wail until the longing for food is fulfilled. Their craving and their desire for milk is unstoppable. There's nothing else more important to those little munchkins in that moment than milk. Their sustenance becomes their highest goal and reward imaginable. And notice also that the newborn's dependence upon milk is total. You cannot substitute anything out for the milk. Without the milk, the baby will die. There's no alternative to that model. This is a total and complete dependence that these little people have. And there's only one source of food that can solve the problem. There's only one thing that gives life and prevents the alternative of death. And just as the newborn cries for milk and will be satisfied with nothing else, so we must long for pure spiritual milk. Nothing else can satisfy us. Not one thing can substitute for this spiritual milk we must crave. So that's the answer to the first question. But to answer it any more fully, we really need to answer the second question now. So second, what is this spiritual milk? Now, we need to be careful answering this question because this is a situation where understanding the context is critical if we're to know what Peter is teaching us. Because there are other places in the New Testament that talk about believers and milk. Listen to Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the problem of that text is that some are not pursuing maturity in the faith. So these believers are immature and they understand little. And worse than that, through a lack of care, they have erred in the elementary basics of the faith. They can't even determine what is good and what is evil. They are spiritually stunted. And we see another rebuke from Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. So in those two examples, milk refers to the basics of the faith that some were not pursuing. They needed to hear the fundamentals of the gospel again. But that is not the way that Peter is using milk here. And there are several things that tell us this. First, Peter is not focused on rebuking anyone here. Chapter 1 gave no rebukes and chapter 2 won't either. And second, Peter wrote this letter to the saints throughout Asia Minor, the whole region of modern-day Turkey. So it's pretty hard to believe that out of that whole region, none of them were mature. The command in chapter 2, verse 2, is universal to all the saints reading the letter, not just the immature. And then third, while Peter uses the term infants here, it's not a derogatory comment or a swipe. He's not calling them babies to taunt them. We are children of God, which Peter talked about with our rebirth multiple times in chapter 1. Therefore, milk is not referring to the basics in this case. And then the last reason is that the word for longing 
and craving is used throughout the Old Testament, but only for very good things. So we've already talked about the word long, at least in the ESV, shows an intense personal desire of the body, mind, and soul. The, na- the same word is used in Psalm 42.1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. The psalmist's soul pants for the Lord. And pant is that exact same longing verb. The comparison of the deer longing for water in a dry place is very similar to the infant longing for milk. Both are analogous to longing for God. We see the same subject of longing in Psalm 84. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. The scripture is the focus of this longing word in Psalm 119. In verse 20, it says, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. And then if you go to verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. So in the same psalm, you see the same word used for both longing and panting for the word of God. There is a good and an intense urge to understand God's statutes. But it isn't just an Old Testament theme or Old Testament word. In Philippians 1 and 2 Timothy 1, Paul talks about yearning and longing to celebrate fellowship with the saints he's writing to. And then in Philippians 2, Epaphroditus longed to tell his friends that he was all right after they heard that he was sick. So the, the word in the New Testament passages includes cravings of the heart, mind, and soul, or the body, mind, and soul. So this is a type of deep longing that we are to have. So we are to crave spiritual milk. Whatever the milk is, it is something from God which we are called to pursue with zeal. So we've been commanded to crave it like a baby desires milk and as a deer pants for water. Peter refers to the milk as pure. We've already seen that the good milk is from God and therefore will share the same purity as the Godhead. Peter also refers to the milk as spiritual now, this is an interesting word that he uses. And I think there are a couple of levels to this word. First, while the example of the infant and the milk is physical, it's a physical need and fulfillment, we are to be seeking a spiritual parallel. We do not pursue physical milk, but a spiritual equivalent from the Lord. And second, the same word is used by Paul in Romans 12, where it is coupled with the word for worship. And it's translated there as spiritual worship. So in that verse, spiritual can also be translated as reasonable or rational. And the idea of that passage is that by the renewal of your mind, you can offer acceptable worship to God. And I think the idea here in 1 Peter is very similar. The Greek word is logikon. And you can hear the word logic in that Greek word. The milk we are to crave is a rational and a logical one. It is to affect and change the mind. So as we stated at the start of the sermon, we're picking up really from verse 23 in chapter 1, where we were reborn with the imperishable seed of the word of God. And the root of logikon is logos, the very word used in verse 23 for God's word. So the pure spiritual milk, which we are to crave and long for, is the word of God. It is the entirety of the Bible that has been given to us that we are commanded to long for. And only as we go to the Word can we be renewed and fed. As a newborn newborn is dependent upon the milk of its mother, so we are totally dependent 
on God's Word. A commentator named Thomas Schreiner explained it this way. He said, The means by which God sanctifies the believer is through the mind, through the continued proclamation of the Word. Spiritual growth is not primarily mystical, but rational. And rational in the sense that it is informed and sustained by God's Word. So only the Word can grow and sustain us in the faith. Only the Word can inform and sustain our relationships in the church. So now that we have defined the longing we are to have and the spiritual milk we are to long for, we can see the result of obeying this command. Peter says that the purpose of craving the Word of God is so that by it you may grow up into salvation. If we want to grow up in the faith, then we must be continually feeding on the Word. We need a well-rounded diet of Scripture in our lives. We need to hear the Word read, preached, and taught. But we also need to personally dive into the Scriptures and meditate on them. There's no age or level of maturity where we can start to ignore this command. As a child is always dependent upon the mother, so we will always be dependent upon the Word of God to sustain and grow us. Now, as we talked about with the negative commands in verse 1, sins come back up. We forget things. We miss things. Scripture is sometimes not always clear to us or easily understood. But the promise of God is that as we long for and pursue studying His Word, He will bless us and He will grow us. And while not super clear in the English, this growth is actually in the passive form. The ESV says, by it you may grow up. It is the word there. We do not grow ourselves in anything. We obey the command to pursue the word, and God impresses it upon our hearts to mature us and to sanctify us continually. The word is what grows us, just as it caused our rebirth back in chapter 1, verse 23. And that's why we place such a strong emphasis on knowing the Scripture in the Reformed world. It's not that we're just trying to be the smartest Christians. We stress the sufficiency of Scripture because through it God matures His church in faith and in love. And that brings us to the final phrase in verse 3, which we'll conclude with. And there Peter says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now Peter here is quoting from Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34 is all about praising the Lord for all of his rich blessings on his people. The idea then is to look at all the good things God has given you and to bless him. The psalm is one full of joy, hope, and praise. There's nothing about doubt in that psalm or in what Peter means by quoting it. He's not commanding you to doubt your faith. He's calling on you to do something else. This is a diagnostic tool. One of the duties of the Christian is to examine your heart and see if you're walking by faith. So use this line in that way. Ask yourself this question. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Are you loving your brothers and sisters or are you full of malice and envy? Do you long for the word of God as a child longs for its mother's milk? The standard is not perfection. Times of doubt don't undo the promises of God. Have you tasted and experienced the love of God for you and for the church? Have you been fed by the word and rejoiced with the truth in the Bible? The word is sweet, unlike the bitterness of the sins that verse 1 talked about. 
And if you have tasted the sweetness of the word, then you have tasted that the Lord is good. And if you have tasted the goodness of the word, keep pursuing and seeking after the life-giving sustenance it provides. Seek to feed off the word together with the other saints. Because it is the call is not just for you as an individual, but for y'all as the church. While the sins in verse 1 describe what destroys fellowship, feeding off of the word is what restores preserves and enriches our fellowship. Behold the living and abiding Word of God in the hearts of His people. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You that You have impressed Your Word upon our hearts. And I pray that You would only make that stronger, that we would seek and long and pant for Your Word, that nothing else in the world would satisfy us in the way that Your Word does. And that through it You would grow us and mature us And help us to love our brothers and sisters and to love you more. Lord, help us in these things, for we are needy. We need your spirit working in us. So work in us, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.